The image of God in men is the metaphysical foundation of economic thought and action. Without this basis for our knowledge and valuation, there could be no consistent, rational science of economics. That was a quote from Gary North in his book, The Dominion Covenant, and this is Theonomony, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy the host of Theonomony. We as Christians should be careful to think about our economics from a Christian standpoint, with the Bible as our basis. We do not take whatever Ludwig von Mises or Thomas Sowell said and come up with some Bible verses to say that this point of economics is biblical, though that is what many Christians unfortunately do possibly because they do not know better and have never seen a better example. But what they do, they will go forward with the better way. And we definitely do not take whatever John Maynard Cain said and slap some Bible verse on that in order to argue that it is biblical, though no doubt some Christians try to do this as well. Hopefully this group is much smaller than those who do the same thing with Mises and Soul. As Christians, we should base our economics from the very foundation of the Bible, not on Austrian or Keynesian ideas. Since Austrian economics is closer to reality than Keynesian economics, there will be times as we uh, revolutionize our economic thinking to be in accord with the Bible that we appear to be similar to Austrian economics, though there will also be times where we do not. Those times should be thought of as times of common grace on the part of Austrian economic, or the Austrian economists, economists, I can't talk, or times where Christians in that school of thought have influenced the movement in a positive direction. All that to say, as we explore, building off of Gary North and others who went before us and trying to continue their work in the great tradition of Christian economics, we will find that biblical economics does not 100% square with any economics that does not start in the grounding of Scripture. No No matter how many other areas that secular view of economics might happen to get correct along the way. That is why this episode is looking at presuppositional economics, or another way to word that, a presuppositional approach to economics. Since this is a theonomic podcast, and I believe that theonomy is simply presuppositionalism applied to economics, I think it is safe to say that many of my listeners are presup, or at least are open to that idea. If you are not, I still think this episode will be of great benefit to you. And if you do not know what presuppositional apologetics means, do an internet search on that term and a guy named Greg Monson and you'll find hours and hours worth of content that, if you so desire, would take you from where you are now to a pro in a matter of months or years.
depending on your pace. And if you want to go even deeper after that, buy books by a guy named Cornelius Van Til. And after all of that work, you would know more about presuppositional apologetics than most guys alive and be an expert in this important field. Before we keep going with the episode, I want to ask you all to subscribe to Theana Money and turn on the auto-download if you've not already done so. And if you like this episode, then uh, shoot your friends a link so they can listen to it as well. So what do I mean by the term presuppositional economics? I mean that we start with the foundation of God and his word for our thought and understanding of the field of economics. We don't, do not look out at the world and see what works from an economic standpoint and then build our economics off of that, but we start by looking at the word and seeing what God has to say, what principles of economics can be gleaned from scripture, either by direct teaching or by good and necessary consequence, and that is our foundation. We build off of that, even if the pragmatism of secular economics claims that we are, what we are doing does not work. We do what God says because we are to be obedient to God. And you know what? Because the same God who inspired the Bible is the same God who created the world and all of the laws of economics, physics, logic, and so forth. That means that obeying God with our economics will work out for the better. That might mean it works out better in the long run, but in the short run it does not. But hey, we are post-mill and we should have a much longer time horizon than just what works best in the short term anyways. Thinking what is best in the short term and neglecting the long term has gotten many people in many different areas into a lot of trouble, both for themselves and for others. If you want an example, think of every president and presidential cabinet member or congress member who did something they know will hurt the country in the long run, but it increases their chances of getting re-elected if they currently hold an electable office, or has some other benefit for them. And so they pass that hot potato down the road to the next guy, when they are safely out of their position and everyone blames the next guy for the meltdown. I do want to say that it does, quote-unquote, work. To use arguments saying that one way of doing economics is better than another way. Looking at the results and what has worked or not worked in the past. Those are just in general good ideas and to a certain extent they do work. The question of presuppositional economics is not whether that to some degree works, but whether it is best and whether it is biblical. Does the Austrian economic system do well enough to help nations prosper to some degree? Sure. Is Austrian economics based fundamentally and foundationally on God's word? No. Will an economic system based on God's word in the long run make nations that follow those principles much better off than those that follow Austrian economics without God's word? Yes. Even if that were not the case, should we still make God's word our foundation because that is building upon a solid rock and all other ground is sinking sand? Yes. And we should make this last question the most foundational and important to us, not the previous questions of what works best. We build our foundation on God's word, and in the end, that does actually work best because God is the creator. But even if it did not, 
we should still build our foundation on God's word. Here is some exciting news on this. Gary North was not the end-all, be-all of biblical economics. The concepts are still being fleshed out and debated. Study those who went before, including but not limited to Gary North, as well as those alive today who have written on the topic, like George Grant, and see what they have said to become familiar with the great tradition of economics, especially biblical economics. Then do what you can to wrestle with what Scripture has to say on this topic, what others have said on it, whether or not what they said truly lines up with Scripture, and how to apply those concepts here and now. There is much work that has to be done as we pass the baton to our descendants. But before we do that, making our way a bit further down the track than those who before us were able to go, so that those after us can go further than we did. Let me explain what I'm talking about here with some examples. Conservative economics that is against all of the welfare handouts, these days I have to specify that because unfortunately someone can be in favor of all sorts of socialism checks and still be able to claim they are conservative because they're at least not quite as socialistic as the other guy. Anyways, conservative economists who are against all of the welfare handouts can make an argument against those handouts using the negative outcomes and with accompanying statistics. They can point to the extra welfare for single mothers and how that promotes fatherlessness. Knowing that a single mother can get a larger welfare check than a married couple can lead to several ways of thinking for a potential deadbeat father. He can think that this means he can go sleep around and get a bunch of women pregnant and leave them afterwards and it will be okay because the government will give them a check to be a single mother so she and their baby do not need him. Or you can take a guy that is not that much of a horrible jerk, a guy who legitimately wants to stay with his girlfriend and provide for their baby, but for whatever reason, maybe some bad decisions in the past he regrets and won't do again, but still has to live with the consequences of, he struggles to get a job that pays anything decent. He realizes that his wife and baby would get more money from the government welfare check of her status as a single mom than she could get from him trying to provide for the three of them together. So in making a decision that he thinks is better for his girlfriend and baby, he leaves them so she can get a larger welfare check, thinking that the government can provide for her and the baby better than he can. Conservative economists can point to that and the devastating consequences of fatherlessness, with all sorts of statistics about crime or teen pregnancy, and drug use, and other things that are much worse when a father is not in the picture. And he can use examples like this and other examples and statistics to show how welfare is more harmful to many of these people and society as a whole, that it is beneficial. Those are some good facts, and they are very true. However, Facts like these cannot be the basis and foundation of our argument if we want to argue for presuppositional economics. That does not mean that we cannot use statistics and examples such as what I just provided, but that we use them differently than others do. When it comes to presuppositional apologetics, 
I like to explain it in a simple, concise way like this. Precept says, God, therefore, evidence. Whereas evidentialism says, evidence, therefore, God. Being precept does not mean that you cannot use evidence, but rather that you start with God, and the evidence is just support you have, and you use it differently. You do not point to the evidence and say that because of it, God exists. No. Instead, you point to God first and foremost as the rock of your foundation, and you say that because the same God who inspired the Bible is the creator of the world, and all of the history he gives in the Bible is true history, then what we find in science and archaeology supports what the Bible says. It is therefore because God is God and he is sovereign over history and creation. The evidence is corroborating support we see because God is there, not the evidence we argue from to prove that God is there. That is why I say it is God, therefore evidence, not evidence, therefore God. God, therefore evidence, not evidence, therefore God. The day I first met my friend, Dr. Anthony Silvestro, I mentioned this to him and he said he likes it which made me feel proud of myself because Dr. Silvestro has spent much time traveling the country teaching apologetics and hermeneutics with Andrew Rappaport. If a guy like that says that a little guy like me explains something well in the area of apologetics, it makes me feel pretty good about myself, if I'm being honest. All that about presuppositional apologetics is to better explain where I am going with presuppositional economics. So how do I get the same result of what I just explained a couple minutes ago about welfare and fatherlessness, but start from scripture and use those facts as corroborating evidence, just supporting my main argument that God is God, and he says it is inspired word that those things are not good. Here is how I would go about it. First, God's word says that theft is wrong. It also recognizes the ability of government to collect taxes. So let's do the work of explaining what is just or unjust taxation, if the latter does exist, according to God's word. Because unjust taxation is a government-level violation of God's prohibition against theft. Also note that this entire argument presupposes the truth and accuracy of the Bible without apologizing for such an assumption. If you listen to two episodes I released back-to-back last fall, the first called Romans 13, and the latter called Biblical Taxes, you'll get a lot of the answers to the questions I just proposed. For the sake of time, I'm not going in much depth with them here, but suffice it to say that a government which charges 10% or more of your income in taxes is essentially claiming to be God, because the tithe is God's tax. Looking at the head tax in the Old Testament, my current position of ideal Biblical taxation is 124th, or about 4.17%. But that is not 4.17% of your income in a given year paid in taxes, but 4.17% of the average income. That way the rich do not pay more and the poor do not pay less than the half shekel, per Exodus 30.15. A half shekel at that time being about half a month's labor for the average person. Also only males 20 and older would pay taxes, Females and males under 20 years old would not pay taxes at all, and pastors might be exempt, but I have not done enough study to say that for certain. 
And this is a point that theonomic nations could disagree on, though my current understanding of the discussion points to this being the most biblical option. So beginning from this foundation rooted in scripture, we see that theft is wrong and that unjust taxation, which is not all taxation, is indeed theft. It is as wrong for the government to try to be Robin Hood and steal from the rich to give to the poor as it is for an individual to do so. Unless that rich person did steal from the poor man and the government is imposing restitution with a biblical level of interest, then the government is stealing from the rich man via unjust taxation, and that is theft and it is sinful. So the government cannot ethically exact a high percentage of taxation from its citizens. The United States government, and as far as I know, the governments of every Western nation thinks, or at least acts like, all of its citizens' money belongs to the government and they are kind for letting us keep any of it for ourselves. That is unjust and wrong before God. The government ought not to do this. It also ought not to dilute our gold and silver with dross and our wine with water. That is, it ought not to devalue our goods and currency, as God condemns Zion for doing in Isaiah 122. A major implication of this for us today is that the government ought not artificially inflate and thus devalue our currency. This too is wrong before God. All kinds of different areas where the government has gotten involved and made things worse, whether the issues with welfare and fatherlessness already pointed out, or any number of the unjust and wicked things the American government has done, would be impossible if they only received two or three thousand dollars a year in taxes from males 20 and older and no taxes at all from men below 20 nor from females and possibly not from pastors either add to that a prohibition on artificially inflating the dollar by adding new money outside of new discovery of gold or silver or whatever commodity backs the currency of a given nation or used to back the currency before unbacked fiat currency rolled the day. And you have a government very limited in what it is able to do. Then the government will financially be limited to the guidelines given for government and scripture, either explicitly or by good and necessary consequence, and the spirit or general equity of the law. This strict financial constraint on the government would not allow for politicians to enrich themselves from political positions, especially since a lot of these positions might become volunteer instead of paid, like more of them used to be in the United States in our early days. You still have the issue of corrupt judges taking bribes, like we have backroom deals today. But this would make that more difficult because the government has its hand in many fewer pots and a nation that takes scripture seriously enough to put such practices into place should also recognize prohibitions on those who take bribes, such as Exodus 18.21, 23.8, and Deuteronomy 16.19. This strict financial constraint on the government would also not allow for billions of dollars on welfare benefits, who knows how much of which makes those giving out the benefits rich instead of giving instead of going to people who actually need the help or goes out to people who do not really need the help but know how to make the system think they do. 
So after explaining how scripture would not allow for such welfare benefits, then we can go into all of the harms they cause for many people, such as what I mentioned a bit ago. The difference is we do that now from the foundation that God's word does not allow for it, and here are some reasons why it is bad. So isn't it wonderful that God would not have us do this thing that we think helps people but actually harms them? We do not make the statistics our main argument, but rather God and his revelation to us in the Bible as our main argument, and those statistics are corroborating support that is true because God is true, and his word reflects accurately his world. Then we can go into biblical ways where the family and the church spheres of sovereignty, not the civil magistrate sphere of sovereignty, can and should and even has a responsibility to help the poor, as they are able to do so. We can pull from many places in scripture to show the importance of helping the poor, but we can also show that the family and the church tend to do it better than the state. The state just throws money at poor people, and unless they're industrious and trying to use that money only when absolutely necessary in order to provide for themselves on their own as soon as they can, like Dr. Ben Carson's mother, if you have read his autobiography, Gifted Hands. If they are not like that, then the money might ruin the person by teaching them they can be lazy and the government will pay them to sit at home all day long and not be productive. I'm sure there are some churches that do much to help the poor who do not do much more than just throw money at them like the government does with its welfare. But there are many Christians now and throughout church history who try to help the poor not just by giving them material assistance to meet their immediate needs, but giving them other assistance that can help them no longer be poor in time to come if they will apply themselves. These people are the worthy poor. To use the term Matt Belville and I discussed in an earlier episode of Theana Money when he was on as guest. And even the churches that do not do that and more or less just give poor people food or maybe money and nothing else. And to some extent, all churches who help the poor have to do this to some degree because you cannot have a close relationship with every poor person and you help if you want to aid more than a handful of them. But the churches who just give them some food and send them on their way, they probably invite that person to church the next Sunday. Or if they don't, the person knows that this is a church that has helped them in time of need and might decide to come on a Sunday. Or maybe the church gives the person a tract with the food or something. Hearing the gospel and by the grace of God repenting of one's sin and placing one's faith in Christ, or being strengthened in one's faith by attending a faithful church, are things that can help a poor person in ways that unbelievers will not recognize, perhaps intentionally refuse to recognize. The sanctification that comes with a new heart and then being conformed more and more every day into the image of Christ will help some poor people to be wiser with the resources God has given them, more industrious, and could perhaps lead to that person who was poor when he first got saved not being poor anymore within a year or two afterwards because his new, regenerate heart, being guided by God's word and the Holy Spirit, urges him to work hard to God's glory. In summary, we are Christians and therefore should not argue for conservative economic principles in the same way that unbelieving conservative economists do. 
we start with the Bible as our rock and our foundation, because it is the perfect, God-breathed word of the creator of the universe. From that starting point, we are able to use statistics and other evidences as corroborating support because God's word and God's world are consistent with one another. So what is faithful to scripture will work in the real world. But we do not use those statistics as the foundation of our argument. If we are to be faithful to scripture and defend sound economic principles in ways that are explicitly Christian. And I want to close with one more quote from Gary North, this one from his book, Wisdom and Dominion, which is an economic commentary on Proverbs. In order to integrate the laws of economics with the facts of economic life, men need a guide. This guide is the Bible. The special revelation of God gives men the interpretive framework for understanding economic cause and effect. That was this week's episode of Theonomony. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Satisfies me Your law is sweet Oh, you say